Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, July the 22nd, 2022. It is currently 1.36 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where I'm slapping myself a couple of times. I'm just keep, I keep slapping myself. Like, really? Is it Friday? There's no way it is Friday. This week has been uh, just, I don't even know how to describe this week. It had, but it's, it's just, it's Friday. I can't believe it's kind of reached an end. And I feel like there is so much we haven't done. If you would have asked me starting probably last Friday, how I was envisioning this week to go, oh, I would have laid out my master plan. Oh, I had so many things we were going to do, so many live broadcasts. There was, I had so many ideas. And now here we are Friday. And I don't think one thing went as planned. Not one thing went as planned. But I will say this, that in the midst of all of the craziness, we were able to get a few things done. I was able to (laughs) stumble, find myself in the midst of a new series that wasn't planned But here we are. We are in a new series now working on trying to identify Babylon. Babylon. Is it a person? Is it a place? Is is it a thing? Is it just an idea? What is Babylon? How do we identify Babylon? Now, remember, the text that really sparked all of this is Revelation chapter 17. Let's start reading again in verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will shew, I will shew unto thee, show unto thee. Okay. Sometimes the old English, I'm like, wait, shew, show, shay, she. Okay, all right, so let's read this again. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgments of the great whore, the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Please note, judgment of the great whore, keep that in mind. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornications. So you have kings of the earth, right? Now, typically, I I will just throw this out there. This We have not discussed this anywhere in this series so far, but I'll just play kind of a little hermeneutics game here, which can make some uh, apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature very difficult to understand. Because look here, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. Question, do you believe those are seven literal angels? Most people will say, sure. Seven vials. Do you believe those are literal seven vials? Some may go, well, no, maybe there may be some speculation there. And talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, some will say, well, the great whore is not a person. It's a place or it's a thing. It's an ideology. So they will say that's not speaking of a specific person who's guilty of some kind of whoredom. But then when you come to verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth, are are those literal kings of the earth? Literal nations? So are kings nations? 
with the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Is that speaking of the actual inhabitants of the earth? We would say, yeah, those are the actual people on the earth. The kings represent the actual nations on the earth. Okay, well then verse three. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast. Is that an actual woman? Now, most would say, no, 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 it's not an actual woman. The woman represents something, right? So sitting upon a scarlet colored beast, an actual beast? Most people are going to say no, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And most of those seven heads and ten horns, not actual horns. It's representative. It's symbolic. Verse 4, and the woman, but people say, it's not an actual woman, but the woman is, is arrayed in purple, scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. So we say, well, that's, that, that, that woman is not a real woman. That woman represents Babylon, which is not really a city. It's really, an, you see, or it's, it's a real city, but it's not Babylon. This becomes where, this is where trying to interpret certain parts of the Bible when it comes to apocalyptic or prophetic uh, literature and using apocalyptic or prophetic language can lead to a lot of back and forth. Someone say, that's literal. No, that's symbolic. No, that's literal. That's symbolic. Now, sometimes the text, if you continue reading, will help clarify some of that, but sometimes you're left with a lot of speculation. And sometimes when preachers stand behind pulpits, instead of embracing the difficulty, embracing the fact that there's been so much speculation and so many different views, what many pastors do is they try to set that all aside. They try to hide that behind the curtain, right? And then what do they do? They give everyone a sense of certainty at the expense of truth. And you know, I have been talking about that through this entire series so far, and it drives me absolutely crazy. So when it comes to the identity of Babylon, is it, a, is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? Is it an idea? There's lots of speculation. However, sermons, will constantly pastors will stand behind the pulpit and say, well, it's really clear. It's so clear. It's very easy. In other words, don't look behind the curtain. It, it, there's, there's no confusion. And then just watch what happens in the next verse. And I saw the woman, back to uh, referring to as a woman, Drunken with the blood of the saints. Now, immediately people say, well, the blood of the saints. That's literal. That's literally saints who were killed and their blood was shed. So literal killing, literally blood shed. But the other parts, you see, it can go back and forth. Okay, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Right? And then, um, well, I could, uh, we could continue reading, but we won't right now. We won't. Trust me. We're going to, I know what you're saying. Just keep reading. And you probably have asked, why haven't you done that yet? For specific reasons, you will see. Look, there's, there's, there's a method to my madness sometimes, because what I prefer to do is have you walk through all of the struggle and all of the questions. That's what I prefer to do. So hopefully it will all make sense when this is over. I don't know. 
when this series is over, we still may not know the identity, but the one thing we have done is I've not substituted certainty at the expense of truth, and I'm not going to do that. Now, so far, I've given you at least an example of the different views out there of the identity of this Babylon. View number one, Babylon here, it's not a person, it's not a place, it's just it just represents the, I guess you could call it a place. I guess theoretically you could. Um, it's the apostate church. It's apostate Christendom. Well, that really wouldn't be a place. If it's an actual church, it would be a place. It's, it's just Christianity at large, the apostate form of Christianity. So it's not really a woman. It's not really a place. It's just the symbolic of the apostate church of apostate Christianity. Right? That was view number one. View number two, it's a city, but it's not Babylon. It's Rome. So they use Babylon as code for Rome. And, and yeah, we, we've talked about all of these. Then uh, view number three was one that was kind of facetious because once you start saying it's a city, that, that it's not Babylon, but Babylon is a code for another city, well, then you can start throwing any city in there that could possibly work. And so someone threw out the idea, it's Dallas, Texas. And then they went and tried to show how you can even put, you can make Dallas, Texas fit if you try hard enough. All right. Then another view is it's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. And which then that requires a preterist view. So then you have to have an early dating for the book of Revelation. We've covered all of this. Or it's, it's, it's Babylon on the Euphrates River. It's the actual city and nation of Babylon, just symbolized as a woman, right? Or, or is it a woman? Okay. I guess we could even throw in that view. Uh, there, there are so many different views. So we have been looking at all of this. In the midst of doing that, we, I still, in fact, the entire reason this series even began is because I stumbled upon an episode from real life with Jack Hibbs, who's a pastor at a Calvary Chapel Church, and his program is called Real Life with Jack Hibbs. They have their own app. And so I started listening and going, well, wait a minute. According to him, Revelation 17 and 18, the identity of Babylon is so clear. It's so clear. So we started reviewing, critiquing, and analyzing some of these programs that he's airing on his podcast and on radio. We've made it to the third episode, and so far, he's not given us anything close to an actual explanation of who Babylon is. He has been down so many just different roads. Not only has he done that, he basically has put forth this idea that there are that there are certain mythologies that are actually history. It was it was really bizarre because he started finally talking about Babylon after he was talking about so many other things, and then he talked about Nimrod, and then he started talking about Nimrod's wife, and I, I have her name right here, and this was it was bizarre. Because when he started talking about her, you're like, wait, what's going on? Uh, Simiramis is her name. And the problem is she's never mentioned in the Bible anywhere. Not only that, there's all kinds of different ideas and theories and opinions and claims about uh, Simiramis. And there's nothing we can actually trust. There's nothing we can actually be dogmatic about. But he brings her into this entire discussion, throws out a lot of mythologies almost acting like they're historically accurate with no 
justification for how he's drawing that conclusion completely ignores the fact that there's so many disputes and different claims about her, and he completely leaves out the fact she's never mentioned in the Bible. Why we're trying to identify Babylon, and next thing you know, he's he's with Semiramis and talking about her, and you're like, what is going on? Um, really what he was doing, from my estimation, is he took the, the book written, it's a book, I think, 1853, I don't have the date in front of me, called Two Babylons, and he basically was using that book as his uh, authoritative his- history of supposedly uh, Semiramis. But it's been bizarre. Now, some people could ask, well, then why why are you continuing? Like, if, if he's not really helping, why are you continuing? Are you out of your mind? How can we stop now, right? How can we stop now? I mean, are we committed to this? I mean, sometimes once you commit, you're committed. There, there's no turning back. There's no uh, There's no getting out of this now. So we have to at least, uh, we're going to review. I don't know when we're going to stop. We're just going to go a couple of more episodes until we feel like, okay, we, 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 we've, we, we've exhausted everything he can possibly say. We're hoping, the reason we're doing this is one, I just want to show you this bizarre way he's really trying to preach Revelation 17. It's definitely a bizarre example and exercise in hermeneutics. Okay, but we're definitely in. We're someone just said we're one hundred percent committed. We we're de- we definitely are, and it is definitely. I, there's a part of me that wants to just stop, but there's another part of that says, you know what? This is a great example of just what so many people. I don't know. They they think this is actual studying of Revelation seventeen when it isn't. It, I don't know what it is. So what we're doing is I've, I've been removing all of the intros and I'm not playing the outros. Uh, we did that for part one, um, and I'm just kind of shortening it down to just whatever they have for us, and we're going to look at it now. Some of these are frustrating because in the episode he reviews so basically it's a replay of what he already said in the previous episode, but that just helps keep some kind of continuity and keeping everything uh, going together. Once again, I would remind you, this comes from real life with Jack Hibbs. I would challenge you to go to your app store, Apple or Google Play, look for Real Life with Jack Hibbs, download the app. There, there, look, there's plenty here that we've disagreed with, but by all means, I still would want you to check out, I mean, he, we're not going to review his entire series on Revelation 17 and 18. There's lots of episodes. So download the app and just go back through the archives and find some of the episodes. I guess he's done an entire series on the book of Revelation. You can go back. I don't know how far the archives go back and just listen to some. You may not always agree. You may not, you may disagree, but hearing the different perspectives, we're, we're trying to say, hey, you say that it's easy. You, you've made the claim that the identity of Babylon is no mystery. It's no problem. It's simple. Okay. You've yet to give us the simple answer, but we want your answer because we really want to consider it and we want to add it to our list of possible ways to identify Babylon and Revelation 17 and 18. And one of the reasons we want to gather as many possible ideas is because I want to demonstrate to my listeners, next time you're in church and someone's like, hey, here's the identity of Babylon, and they give you certainty, you know that they're giving you certainty at the expense of truth. And I don't see that to be mean, but you need to realize when that's happening to you. Because the reality is, hey, guys, we're getting ready to go to Revelation 17. I don't have a clue. No one has a clue. 
We've got all kinds of different views. They're very, it's very convoluted at best trying to work through all the views, but we're just going to work through it together. When we're done, we may not be able to be dogmatic, but at least you will know all the difficulties that this passage has caused over 2,000 years of church history. That, to me, is far better than saying, hey, there's a lot of views out there, and here's one, two, three, four. None of them really work. Here's the one that works. It's really quite simple. Yeah, that's so misleading, and that doesn't help your people because when your people hear the other views, they find themselves being tossed to and fro. And I always say to my congregation, guess what, guys? You're going to be tossed to and fro right here sitting in the pew. I'm going to be the one who tosses you to and fro with every wind of doctrine to so that you are familiar with it. Then I can give you something that we can hopefully hold on to. That's the way I think it should work. The church is there to equip, to protect people from, from that. So I don't know. That's my philosophy. You may have a different one, and that's okay. You have every right to be wrong. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. This is, this is, I, I went a little long in the intro uh, because this one's relatively short. It's probably about 20 minutes, if that, maybe 19 minutes. There's not going to be a lot here. So I'm not looking that we're going to have any, stumble upon any great revelation right here, but we're going to, we're committed. So here we go. Jack Hibbs, program real life. He's trying to, well, according to him, he's already identified Babylon, he just won't give us the answer yet. So at some point, maybe he will. Semiramis gave birth to a son. You want to hear how she gave birth or how it came about that she became pregnant? It says that Semiramis had become pregnant by a beam of light that descended from heaven. And thus Tammuz was born and grew into the spirit of his father Nimrod, for he loved to hunt. And his mother, Semiramis, cared for him greatly. And as his father was a hunter and very talented at hunting, Nimrod, uh, excuse me, uh, Tammuz, Tammuz was a hunter as well. And he became a great hunter. So during the time of his young manhood, it says that he was brutally killed on one of his hunting expeditions by a wild boar. His mother, Semiramis, was so grieved at the death of her only son that she prayed to the gods of the underworld, according to ancient history. And she prayed and... Please note, according to ancient history, not ancient mythology, he's teaching this as if it actually happened. And let me just remind you, the whole thing with Semiramis, if you've ever been in a university with an atheistic professor who really is a hostile to Christianity, many cases, and, and not just atheistic professors, just atheists and agnostics online or anywhere else, many times they make this claim that the, the, the account, the mythology of, of Semiramis and her son having this, you know, basically conceiving a son in some supernatural way, he is born, he dies, and then he is resurrected. The claim is often made Christianity just stole that story. That Christianity is not unique. It just stole the story of Semiramis, her son, his death, his resurrection, and that all Christianity is, is ancient paganism, ancient mythology, just brought into the Jewish world and and created th their own mythology. That's what the claim is. So if you're teaching that this actually happened, 
<laughs> well, then, then, then you're really giving the, I mean, I don't know why you would want to teach that this actually, this actually happened. I guess his argument is this actually happened and it was a demonic counterfeit of what was to come. So the demons gave the, the counterfeit before the original even happened. I, I, I guess, I don't know, but it's just funny. He keeps saying ancient history, ancient history. Why wouldn't you say this is what happened in ancient mythology? Now, I don't know. And not only that, all of these accounts, there's so many different accounts on exactly what happened. And like he gave the story of Nimrod supposedly shooting an arrow into the heavens so that he could shoot God and bring him down. Well, there's different accounts on even how that happened. If that happened, he, he gives you like, here's the way it is. This is what happened. And, and in many cases, he's not even giving us sources for where he's gathered his information or anything. It's really, I, 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 to be honest with you, it's really perplexing. And not only that, what does any of this have to do with identifying Babylon? Unless he's going to say that Babylon in Revelation 17 is the return of Semiramis. That, that it, it's going to be that she is the original and the Babylon in Revelation 17 is simply the copy. I, I, I but, well, then that, well, then that you would think that in Revelation 17, it would be an actual woman, right? Semiramis, a woman that many refer to as Nimrod's wife. And I think mainly Eusebius is where we really uh, start deriving that idea from. Okay, let, let's continue. And lamented for 40 days. So great was the lamentation of Semiramis that her lamentation by the Babylonians were, was called, or later became called, Lent. The lamentation. So great were her prayers, so fervent was her intercession for her son, that the gods of the underworld released Tammuz, and he was risen from the dead. At such an event, the world at that time then began to declare to her to be the priestess of heaven and hell. Did he just infer, because I missed this last time, that the origins of Lent is the lamentations of Semiramis? This is coming, to, I now, look, there's no question now. He's taking this directly from the book to Babylon's. There is no question about it. That's where that comes from. That is where that comes from, because again, I was introduced to uh, the two Babylons book in my first Bible Institute in Papillion, Nebraska. We went to Divine Truth, and if I remember correctly, I think the divide. This it's really. I know you're going to think I'm making this up, but this is really what happened. Divine Truth carries a lot of books that, and quote unquote, were. Let, how could you say this? Was. Uh, anti-Catholic, was very hostile to Catholicism, but they did not want those books out on the shelf, which would offend Catholics and they would lose their business. So they kept the quote-unquote anti-Catholic books under the counter. <laughs> I, I'm not, I know you think I'm joking, but it's true. And so I remember going, going, yeah, we're looking for two Babylons. I'm like, okay, one second. And they pull it out from under the counter and hand it to us, almost like we were like buying pornography or something, you know, like keep this on, we're going to put it in a brown paper bag. Just, you know, don't let anyone know you got it here. It was really bizarre. I understand from a business perspective, but I, I just, I hate that mindset. Like in the bookstore, put whatever, 
And then you can either read it or reject it. I, I don't know. I, I like the free market of ideas. I, I don't like, we're going to, yeah, that's a whole different story. I, it's crazy. But so this seems something that would come directly from that book. It sounds like something, I got to find my copy of Two Babylons. I may, I may have to just purchase another one for my Kindle. And I will find, I'm going to find, I'm going to go back. Because if it's from Two Babylons, it's easy for him to say, I'm quoting from the book Two Babylons, written in 1853, and then anyone can look up the possible criticisms and critiques of said book, because many of them were written, especially in the 1990s. There was a lot of things discussed about the book. So, I, I, man, I, I would I would love, I'm going to have to, we'll have to challenge that. Okay, so this may end up in a different podcast episode. What we need to do is look for scholarly critique of the claim that the origins of Lent was not Jesus in the wilderness for, you know, in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights fasting and his temptation. That's not the origin of Lent. The origin of Lent is actually Semiramis and her lamentations. Lent is actually taken from mythology. I, I guess he's speaking of it as history, Versus, no, Lent was derived from what Jesus did that's recorded in the Bible. You're, you're telling me that, that the early Christians were like, okay, okay, we're going to have this season called Lent. Now, listen, we're going we're gonna to, like, here's, the, here's, the, here's the theory, all right? Everybody ready? We're going to tell everyone that it comes from Jesus and what he did in the, in, in the desert, in the wilderness, and his temptation. We're going to tell everyone that's the basis of it. But all of you know, right? Okay, we all got our, our our secret rings on. Okay, we all know that these rings represent that we're actually doing this for Semiramis, right? We're actually everybody got this. Okay, it's it's a conspiracy. Shh, keep it on the down low. Shh, we're actually doing it for Semiramis. Okay, you got it. All right, shh, don't let anyone know. And then all of a sudden, in eighteen hundreds, boom, someone figured it out. No, it has nothing to do with you. And they're like, oh man, how did they, who told, who spoke? It was supposed to be a secret. I I know I'm being a little facetious, but I mean, come on. Like if you're going to make a claim like that, you got to, you got to park the car there and we got to, I cannot believe I missed that. The first, how did we miss that? Okay. I, okay. I say we, I'm blaming you. Okay. Because you didn't email me. You should have immediately emailed me going, wait, did you hear what he said at that 17 minute mark you you completely blew past that what were you doing okay I don't know what I was doing okay obviously it was delirious okay but I I don't know how I missed that now I'm really bothered now I'm really bothered okay I want to just grab the iPad right now and start looking this up I I, I can't I can't I'm just gonna look I'm gonna do a quick uh, Google search okay I'm going man I've got to look this up okay Okay, is the origin of Lent traced to Sim? Got to make sure I remember how to spell her name. All right, hang on. Sim or Ramus? Sim or Ramus? Sim or Sim or Ramus? Sim. Hang on. I'm going to do this. Trying to do it with one hand. All right, you see here. Uh, 
Okay, well, okay, so immediately you find some sites that immediately go to this uh, concept, all right? You're going to find some very questionable sites, I guarantee you. Uh, okay, I'm going to go to, all right, here we go. The season of Lent appears after the Council of Nicaea. With so uh, many biblical precedents, did it really take the church more than 300 years to seize upon the idea of fasting for 40 days? The early history of Lent is interesting and complex. It is something of a choose-your-own-adventure. All right? Um, Let's see here. I'm going to look here. Okay, if you if you a closer examination of ancient sources, however, reveals a more gradual historical development. While fasting before Easter seems to have been ancient widespread, the lengths uh, of that fast varied significantly from place to place and across generations. All right. Uh, in the latter half of the second century, for instance, Irenaeus of Lyons and Tertullian tells us that preparatory fast lasted one or two days or 40 hours, commemorating what was to believe the exact duration of Christ's time in the tomb. But the mid-third, by the mid-third uh, century, okay, they start going through all the different times. Most of this was just, uh, fa- they were dealing with just fasting, times of fasting, times of fasting. Um, so there were different times of fasting and then they lengthened the times of fasting for specific periods of time. And there was an, a development that occurred throughout church history. They say today, the history of Lent's origins is far less certain because many of the suppositions upon which the standard theory rested have been cast into doubt. So whatever there was, some of those theories about how it came to pass was thrown into doubt through different uh, discoveries. Tertullian admitted or indicates that Easter was a most solemn day for baptism, but but he is only one of a handful of writers in the pre-Nicene period, that is before 325 AD, who indicates this preference. And even he says that Easter was by no means the only favorite day for baptisms in his locale. Easter baptisms did not become widespread until the mid-4th century. When it does, it appears to be nothing more than an idolized norm alongside which other equally acceptable occasions continue to exist. All right, so, all right, that doesn't really help us with Lent. Um, That doesn't help us any. Okay. It doesn't see that we're—I'm going to look here if they give us a conclusion. This is a long scholarly work uh, published uh, at, a, at, Baylor, uh, at Baylor.edu. Okay, this is—let uh, me see. Do they—okay, here we go. This is—at uh, this point, the early history of Lent becomes something of a choose-your-own-adventure. The current state of research points to three possible conclusions— because the evidence is slim and admitting of any number of plausible interpretations. All right. One position has, has been to view Lent as a, a phenomenon completely new and unique that simply appears after the Council of Nicaea. In this view, any attempt to hazard connections or lines of evolution from pre-Nicene fasting practices is too speculative to be of any value. Another rather opposite position has been to accept a historical... Uh, as is historical, the alleged Egyptian post-theophany fast to identify 
as the dominant antecedent to Lent. And that Lent's rapid dissemination throughout the Christian world is best explained in relation to the program of liturgical and theological alignment begun at Nicaea. A final position is sort of a, a, a via media or middle road acknowledges the incomplete, sometimes contradictory nature of evidence, but asserts nonetheless that Lent's developments and an amalgamation of several early fasting customs and typologies of which the post-theophany fast may have been but one of many. In other words, simply put, there's a lot of theories no one knows, but guess what is not mentioned in this scholarly paper? Not once. Doesn't even come up. Guess what does not come up? That Semiramis and her lamentations is how we got Lent. It's not there. However, what's interesting, there are some websites that seem to go in this direction. I'm going to save that paper. I'm going to save that paper. There are some other websites. I know you're like, whoa, I get to listen to you do try to do research live on the air. Okay, um, let's see here. If you go to a website called uh, Fulc- Fulcrum, your scriptural pivot point. Don't know anything about this. Uh, the original meaning of Lent, the origins and meaning of Lent. All right, Um Yes, they go with uh, Tammuz. They go with uh, Samarias. Uh, they go. They say they go back to Genesis ten. Uh, Semiramis. I, I, well, I don't know why I get her name wrong. Okay. Uh, so after uh, Tammuz was killed by a wild pig. The Queen of Heaven proclaimed a 40-day period of sorrow each year prior to the anniversary of the death of Tammuz. Every year on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox, a celebration was made. It was Ishtar's Sunday and was celebrated with rabbits, eggs, and hunts. The truth is, is that 40 days of Lent, um, eggs, rabbits, all of those things uh, are, are all go back to ancient pagan religion mystery. So now they, they don't say where they're getting any of this information from. Yeah. They don't, they don't provide any, once again, no actual documentation of where this comes from. None. No footnotes. No anything. No anything. Oh, man. And, see, and immediately the comments are very interesting. Thanks for the information. What information? He didn't tell you where he got any of these supposed claims. All right. Okay. All right. Okay, someone, okay, I've got to make sure I understand. Okay, I'm going to go, op- I'm going to open up the Spreaker app. I got to make sure I clearly understand what they are saying here. Give me one second. All right. So this, oh, this is crazy. Man, when you listen to a sermon, you never know what you're going to stumble upon. Okay. Um, the word Semiramis shows up in two Babylons over, oh, okay, over 40 times. Okay, so in the book, Two Babylons, uh, the word Semiramis shows up over 40 times, which which makes perfect sense. That's where this information is coming from. That's the source material. Just the pastor's not telling us what the source material is, but uh, that's that is just uh, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. So here's what I would say, and listen to me carefully. If you're going to say that the the origins of Lent doesn't go back to Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. It goes back to Semiramis, 
Well, then could not someone argue, well, the whole story of Jesus and the virgin birth and his death, burial, and resurrection, that comes from Semiramis. Like, if you're going to claim that, I mean, you've got to draw, you've got to show that there was a, that the early church said, hey, guys, we're going to do this thing called Lent. We're going to do these 40 days of fasting. We're going to do, we're going to do this time where we focus on fasting and repentance. And we're going to take it from Semiramis. If you're going to make that claim, why can't someone then make the claim that all of Christianity is based off Semiramis and Tammuz or whatever the name of the child was? I don't have the writing in front of me. I closed the article. Okay. But um, why why wouldn't you just make that argument? Like Christians are really in this particular case, in order to try to discredit Lent, they really are making an argument to discredit all the claims of Christianity as all being taken from ancient pagan mythology. That that would seem like you're utterly hurting yourself. That, this is just bizarre. He just made that claim with like, just, he didn't even blink. He didn't even go, did you hear what I just, did you not hear what I just said? Lent is about Semiramis. It's about her lamentations for her dead son who was resurrected. So don't participate in 40 days where you fast and uh, think about your sin and think about repentance and and a time of spiritual growth. No, 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 no. Just ignore that. Now, I'm not saying anyone is bound by anything to set aside 40 days to remember, you know, to focus on your sin, on repentance, on spiritual growth. I'm not saying that anyone is bound to do that, but I don't know how you could ever claim that to do that would be wrong. Look, I opened my Bible. Here's Jesus. In fact, I'll just show you. So I opened my Bible. Jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil and he was, and he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. What would be wrong with saying, okay, for 40 days, we're going to focus on temptation and sin and we're going to spend some time fasting. How can you say, no, 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 no. That's, there's no way to condemn setting aside a period of time for spiritual focus. But to say, that, to, to make the bold claim that that goes directly to Semiramis, and then you start looking at actual scholarly papers, and they're like, well, could be this, could be this. You're like, no, you got it all wrong. It was a secret meeting where the church all sitting around, they were smoking cigars in a dimly lit room, and someone was like, all right, guys, I got a plan. I got a plan. We can deceive everybody. We can make them be actually thinking about Semiramis when they don't even know. They're thinking they're about Jesus. I mean, come on. All right, what? How did we? Okay, I thought we would be able to finish this in a couple of minutes. Clearly, we're not. We're not going to be able. I think we're not going to be able to finish this now, which is going to be very frustrating. We may have to go a little long. Wow, that is just crazy, crazy, crazy. That is just crazy. I, I still believe that the two Babylons is the source for all of this. I believe that book is the source for all of this. I really do. I really do. Maybe, maybe, maybe we go back to maybe some writings from Eusebius, but I, you put it this way. This is coming from, well, you'd have to go to, this is what we'd have to do. We'd have to find the section in two Babylons that seem to indicate the source for this, these claims, and then determine what sources he's getting his information from, because two Babylons would be a secondary source, right? So then we would have to, we would have to then trace back to the primary source, 
and then figure out what the primary source. And you know what I bet? I bet you in some cases, two Babylons is referencing other secondary sources, which makes two Babylon like a third-hand source, fourth-hand source. It would probably take us a while to get back to any original source material to determine the histor- historical historical claims about Semiramis and all of these things. Wow, this is crazy. All right, let's continue. I apologize for that massive detour, but I could not, I could not pass that up. I, I just don't, I can't, I'm so sorry for missing it the first time. I am so sorry I missed that the first time. That that was my fault. Wow. I probably, I probably shouldn't be doing podcasting when I hadn't slept in like 24 hours. Okay, man, now I'm really kicking myself. I do apologize. You deserve better than that. So I'm sorry. I should have caught that immediately. So, all right. Enough, enough me having a pity party. Let's, let's see how far we can go. We're already at 40 minutes. Wow. All right. If you have any questions about any of that, please email me newsif at yahoo.com because we will do whatever, I'll do whatever we need to do to try to get to the bottom of some of this. All right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get a re, well, I'm going to have to hire a re, I've got, I've tried to hire a graphics team, a YouTube manager. Now I need to hire a research staff. Okay. That I can just say at any time, I can just pick up the phone and call them. You know, you have, uh, I, I, you may be aware of this. Many of the famous pastors, though their sermons are put together by a research site. You pay a subscription. I think it's, I think it's like, I don't know, $50, $100, whatever it is. And they basically help do all the research for your sermons, right? Um, I'm Mark Driscoll bragged about using it. Um, I would have to find, I did some podcast episodes about it. It's bizarre. You just pay them and you're like, okay, hey, I need some help. Look this up, figure this out. And they'll do, and in many cases, they'll even put, they'll put together the, like, let's say you're going to do a, a study on Romans. They'll put together the book introduction. They'll put together the outline for you. They'll, they basically help write your sermons. I think, uh, I think J.D. Greer from the Southern Baptist Convention also praised it. I, I'll have to remember the name of the company. I'd have to go back in our archives and try to find the podcast about it. But it was crazy. Like you just pay them basically to put your sermon together. I'm like, wow. Man, I, I could probably preach a whole lot better if I was paying people to put my sermons together. But what, doesn't that destroy the fun of preaching? That you're just basically a speech? You're just giving a speech. I like the stumbling and, and, and trying to figure it all out. And maybe sometimes I say things right. Maybe sometimes I say things wrong and I, I don't know. Okay, but all right, here we go. All right, here we go. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm, I'm literally just kind of like speechless at this moment. All right, here we go. She, by her prayer, brought Tammuz back from the dead, out of hell and back into life. You say, Jack, I read that in Greek mythology. You'll read a lot of things in Greek mythology that are tied to ancient history or ancient demonic or biblical. For example, in Greek history. See, mythology, but he's making an argument that it's history, but he puts the claim there. It's demonic. So he's claiming this actually occurred. Well, on what basis is he saying it actually occurred? This is just... This is so baffling to me. And remember, he's doing all of this supposedly to identify who Babylon is in Revelation 17. Okay, we got, I got to stop interrupting. Here we go. In mythological history, there are things about a worldwide flood. Well, let me ask you, do you believe in a worldwide flood because of 
mythology or do you believe in a worldwide flood because of the Bible? It's the Bible. It's just part of Satan's plan and the way that man goes and spinning things. I don't understand this. I know. I know what you're saying. You said you weren't going to interrupt, but I like, I don't understand his argument from just a, a logical perspective. Semiramis is not mentioned in the Bible. Semiramis is not mentioned having a being a son being put in her by a beam of light and that she prayed for her son and he was resurrected. None of that is in the Bible. So you just used it. Talk about logical fallacies. Your argument is, well, mythology talks about a worldwide flood. So you do believe it? No, you believe it because it's in the Bible. Exactly. Semiramis is not in the Bible. <laughs> so what are you talking about? Oh, man. Okay. I am not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I, I, I'm, I am not. This, this, this series is going to kill me. I'm, I'm going to die. I, I am having a hard time trying to figure out what is going on here. I, I'm, all right, here we go. Making them stories and making them lore. But listen to this. Again, Nimrod married Semiramis. Semiramis had a child by the sunbeam that hit her in the belly. Child born. Tammuz is his name. He dies. She prays for 40 days. The child is released from hell where he was bound and given life. What I'm telling you right now is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. Okay? So old is it that Israel adopted the worship of what I just mentioned to you. Did you know that? Israel was guilty of this worship. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15. Jeremiah 44, 15. Jeremiah 44, 15. Tell me when you're there. The reason why I'm waiting is because you won't believe it. Then all the women, verse 15, then all the women present and the men, all the Jews, male and female, who were there and Jeremiah was ministering there, who knew that their wives had burned incense to idols, that is, foreign gods, a great crowd of all the Judeans lived in Pathros, that southern region of Egypt. They answered and said thus to Jeremiah, We will not listen to your messages from the Lord. Verse 17. We will do whatever we want. We will burn incense to the, what's it say? Queen of heaven and sacrifice to her just as much as we like just as we and our ancestors did before us. And as our kings and princes have always done in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for in those days we had plenty to eat and we were well off and had no troubles. Church, did you hear that? Ancient Israel, they were bowing down and worshiping Semiramis because of this ancient cult of her being the queen of heaven and... Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. He just said that that's Semiramis. Okay, I was taught completely different in all the schools I've gone to. Um, Ish, uh, uh, Ishtar um, or Astareth or Astarte. I think those are the different names. I'm trying to remember the names. I think it, I think they, it was Astareth. I think I think Astarte A S T A R T E I believe you can look these up. I, I'm trying I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember. So uh, Ashtoreth I believe is a I, I'm horrible at spelling A S H T O R E T H. That's Ashtoreth. 
You can look that up. Um, I see Astarte, it would be A-S-T-A-R-T-E. Um, or Ishtar, I-I-I-S-H-T-A-R. I think that, uh, and, and she was supposedly the, the, the wife of the god uh, Baal or Baal or Bell or Baal or however you want to pronounce. Remember, we had the whole discussion on how to pronounce it. Um, um, and which Baal or Baal is also known as Molech, if I remember correctly. Um, and I believe the reason they, they would worship Ashtoreth is because she was the fertility god, goddess and supposedly she, they thought she would help them bear children. He just, he just connected it to Semiramis. What is happening here? He just connected this to Semiramis. All right, I, I'm looking something up right now. I apologize. I'm looking something up. Okay, so, all right, here's what I found. See if I'm right. The, the phrase queen of heaven appears in two passages of the Bible, both in the book of Jeremiah. The first passage deals with the things the Israelites were doing that provoked the Lord to anger. Entire families were involved in idolatry. The children gathered wood and the men used it to build altars to worship false gods. The women were engaged in kneading dough and baking cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. Jeremiah 7, 18. This title refers to Ishtar, an Assyrian and Babylonian goddess, also called Ashtoreth and Astarte by various groups. Okay, so those are all the names I thought. Okay, I thought I had all the names right, right? Um, she, was, she was thought to be the wife of the false god Baal, or Baal. Okay, I, I was right about that. The motivation of women to worship Ashtoreth stemmed from her reputation as a fertility goddess, and as the bearing of children was greatly despised among women of Oh, as okay, wait a minute. Make sure I, I maybe I got this wrong. The motivation of women to worship Astaroth stemmed from her reputation as fertility goddess, and as the bearing of children was greatly desired. Okay, among women of that era. Okay, worship of this queen of heaven was rampant among pagan civilizations. Same, sadly, it became popular among the Israelites as well. They don't have anything about Semiramis. Nothing about Nimrod's wife. What is happening? The second passage, okay, let's see, maybe, maybe they're gonna, maybe they're gonna change this here, okay? The second passage refers to the Queen of Heaven as Jeremiah 44, where Jeremiah has given the, uh, the people the word of the Lord, which God has spoken to him. He reminds the people that their disobedience and idolatry has caused the Lord to be angry. Um, with them and to punish them with calamity. Jeremiah warns them that greater punishment awaits if they do not repent. They reply that they have no intentions of giving up their worship of idols, promising to continue pouring out drink offerings to the queen of heaven, Ashtoreth, and even going so far as to credit her with peace and prosperity they once enjoyed because of God's grace and mercy. All right? So there's Ashtoreth again. Where did they get Semiramis? I, I am so baffled here. I'm, okay, I'm going to save this. And all of these just re I'm trying to be I'm trying I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. When you cannot walk into a church and be given factual information and instead are given crazy theories with no you don't even it you're not it why is it that pastors are not required to give 
source and 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 justification for their historical claims. Like they just stand there and just, I'll just say whatever I want because no, you know why pastors get away with that? Because the average person in the pew is not going to look it up. But I'm telling you that is, I'm telling you, older pastors need to realize this. That will, that is changing. You're behind that pulpit making claims. There are people, I guarantee you, pulling out their phones and looking it up with a Google search, just like I did, and it only took minutes to call into question what's being said. Now, I don't think anyone who looks it up, I, I, I wish people would not do that. Now, here's what, I would just say this. If your pastor makes some claim, don't just grab your phone and start looking up. Listen to the sermon respectfully. Just write in your notes, look up, look this up. Look this up. Just put, look this up. You can come up with a symbol, right? You can just write a little symbol next to this. And then when you get home, you'll look it up. If there's a problem, you don't tell anyone else. I wouldn't even tell anyone in your family. You just make a phone call. Hopefully you have a church where you can talk to your pastor and you call and you say, hey, I got a few questions here. I'm a little confused. I'm a little confused. I'm a little confused. If you if you listen to my sermon on Romans 10, on Sunday, you'll notice something happens. I, I was making some claim about Roman Catholicism. I think that a lot of people just think Roman Catholicism is Mary worship, liturgy, and uh, incense. But I'm saying incense. I said incest. I don't know why. I just I, I got the word wrong. And, and so as soon as the sermon was over, right, the sermon was over, uh, someone raised their hand and go, oh, I, I, are we still recording? I'm like, yeah, we're still recording. He said, you need, you, you know, uh, you, you said the word incorrectly. You know how much I appreciate that? So I corrected it. I was able to come home and just edit that, the, saying the word incorrectly out. But I appreciate that. That same woman who said that in the past, um, I, I made a claim about a Hebrew word in Isaiah and she contacted me after the sermon. She didn't make a scene and said, hey, I, I don't know if that's the exact Hebrew word. And you know what? She was right. I got the meaning wrong. I gave the wrong definition for the word. So guess what I did? That was Sunday afternoon, Sunday night. I stood behind the pulpit and said, hey, guys, I was wrong. This is the correct way. I, I'm not in any way embarrassed by that. If a pastor can't handle that, that's a problem. I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for that someone cares enough about scripture and enough about the word of God and truthfulness that they will say something and handle it in a godly way. If, if they start trying to destroy you and talk and gossip, that's that's of no use. If they start trying to cause trouble, but just to call you and say, hey, well, in this particular case, someone's like, hey, hey, Jack, Hibbs, hey, hey. You just attributed Jeremiah 44 to Semiramis. You do realize almost everyone else would, would connect it to Ashtoreth. Are you saying Ashtoreth and Semiramis is the same person? Because Ashtoreth is the wife of Bial. Are you saying Bial is Nimrod? Like, well, well what's going on here? I'm Where did you get your information? What source material? Because I, I need to look. And you don't even have to argue. You could just say, I'm confused. What... What was the source for your information? And then and you can just say, I just need the source for your information. You don't even have to say that you disagree. And then you can go look it up. Then you can come back and go, I'm really, really perplexed here. But he just accused ancient Judah, the Jews, for worshiping Semiramis. I mean, if you're going to accuse someone of, of sin, at least accuse them of the right sin, <laughs> right? Wow. Okay. All right. I don't even know what to say. All right. Let's continue. 
the high priestess. Does that sound amazing to you? Doesn't it sound, as you look to Jeremiah, which is millennia old in your Bible, here in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is saying, you've got to stop worshiping to this pagan system. And they say, we're going to do whatever we want to do. Get off our back. We will continue to worship to, what does your Bible say again? The queen of heaven, Semiramis. Oh, hang on to your seats. Are you with me here? Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. The Lord spoke to me saying, Ezekiel, or son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness? In other words, have you seen in secret what the leadership, the ministry, leaders of Israel do in secret? Each at the shrine of his own idol? That's key, by the way, to understanding Semiramis. They each worshipped at their own idol. Personal idol. They say, the Lord does not see us. The now he's got Semiramis in Ezekiel 8.12. I am, I am so utterly confused at this moment. Okay? I am so confused. Maybe, maybe, okay, now maybe he's, okay, actually he may be right here. Maybe, is he right here? Oh, okay, maybe he's right here. All right, oh, well, let's continue, let's continue. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he says, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 8, then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, and I saw women sitting there mourning for who? <laughs> Tammuz. Man. According to the Babylonian cult, Semiramis acted as the high priest intercession for her son, and it was confirmed upon her. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, it was confirmed upon her by the Babylonians. Her religious... Okay, hang on now. I had to look some things up here, okay? Um, who was Tammuz? The false god Tammuz is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet describes a vision he had saying, the Lord brought me to the entrance of the northern gate of the house of the Lord and I saw women sitting there mourning the god Tammuz. God calls the idolatrous practice of weeping for Tammuz as detestable thing made even worse that it was happening in the temple in Jerusalem. Tammuz, the demigod, apparently began as a Sumerian shepherd named Demu, Demuzid or Demuzi. His father was the ancient Mesopotamian god Enikai, also known as the Akkadian Babylonian Ea, who saved the family of Utanapstheum uh, from the flood in the epic of Gilgamesh. His mother was the sheep goddess Deter. So this, they, this says has nothing to do with Semiramis, has nothing to do with Nimrod. This goes in a completely different direction and he's still saying, what is happening? And that only again took five second Google search. Who was to move in the Bible? Boom. And it's going completely, we're going to, um, I mean, we're going to that he was a he was a demigod, a Sumerian shepherd named Demuzid or Dumazai, Dumazid or Dumazai. Okay, I have to slow down and try to read these words carefully. 
His father was the ancient Mesopotamian god uh, Enki, Enki, also known as the Akkadian Babylonian Ea, Ea, or A, who saved the family of Yunapishtim, Yunapishtim, uh, from the flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and his mother was the sheep goddess Deter in the earlier Sumerian culture. This has nothing to do with Nimrod and Semiramis. It has nothing to do with that. Wow, this, this has really gotten bizarre. This is re- It's almost like he came up with an idea, and he's just seeing that idea anywhere in the Bible. system went out into the world. It was propagated by her priesthood. I want to I want to commend to you the the buying and the reading of a book that has never yet to this day been refuted. It has 271 contributing authors to it. It was written about 1853. You can hardly find it in print because it is so absolutely frightening. It's called The Two Babylons. Boom, there it is. The two Babylons. Okay, I knew it. I told you. I told you that's where it came from. I told you. All right, and, and now, wait a minute. He said it's so frightening you cannot find it in print. It's so frightening you cannot find it in print. Okay, let's just see how frightening it is. It's so frightening. You cannot find this book. That's a good way to get everyone to go buy a book. That, that's a good way to get everyone to go buy the book. Let's see. Let me see. How... Oh, wait, I can get it for 99 cents for my Kindle. But it's so frightening. It's so frightening. You can't get it. Um, um, I also can get it in, let's see here. Um, these are all the uh, Kindle versions. There are, I can get it on paperback for $8.95. So that's just garbage that it's, you can't find it anywhere because it's so frightening. That's a good way to get people to read, though. That's a good way to get people to read. If you need your kid to read a book, just say, you can't read that book. That, that book is forbidden. You can't read it. You just, no, 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 no. You can't, don't, I'm telling you, don't put that book down. And of course, then they'll read it all. Okay, but, all right, so um, it's, the book is easy to find. The book is easy to find. All right, he says, it's never been refuted says it's never been refuted. Okay. Um, let's see here. I'm going to do something. Okay. I'm going to do something here. Says never been refuted. How accurate is the book? The two Babylons. Okay, here. We'll just see what I can find really quick. All right. Okay, here we go. Um, and the and the note by the editor of the seventh edition, which was published in 1871, it was claimed that no one, so far as we are aware, has ventured to challenge the accuracy of the historical proofs adduced in support of the startling announcements on the title page. 
Since then, however, there have been many who have challenged the accuracy of, his, of the claims. For example, Lester uh, L. Grabe has highlighted the fact that Hishop's entire argument, particularly his association of Nemes and Nimrod, is based on misunderstanding of historical Babylon and its religion. Grabe also criticizes Hishlops for portraying the mytho- myth- mythological Queen Samarius as Nimrod's consort despite the fact that she is never mentioned in a single text associated with him. So there's arguments that she's never even mentioned with Nimrod. Why Why is the book making a claim that she's associated with him? Um, uh, and for portraying her as the mother of harlots, even though this is not how she is depicted in any of the text where she is mentioned. She's never mentioned as the mother of harlots anywhere. So you have to make the jump that, that when the mother of harlots is mentioned in the Bible, that it's referring to Semiramis, even though there's no historical or textual evidence to support such claims. In 2011, a critical edition was published. Although Hishlop's works is extensively footnoted, some commentators, in particular Ralph Woodrow, have made the assertion that the documents contains numerous misconceptions fabrications, logical fallacies, and unsubstantiated conspiracy theories, and grave factual errors. Okay, So in other words, there are plenty of people have disputed it. And that's just a, a, a fast search to, to, to look for. So at least though, I do admire this. As much as I'm criticizing all of this, I do admire the fact that he's acknowledging where he got all of his information. His information is not primary source material. Now, now please, I want to make sure this is very, this is basic, logical research information. If you've ever gone to a university, you know this, right? If you're going to make an, a, a claim, right? You're going to make an assertion. Semiramis equals this, 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 this. You got 10 claims about Semiramis, right? Okay. And you quote a book, like the two Babylons, that's not sufficient because that is just a claim. That's a secondary claim. That's a claim being made by someone. You're you're basing your assertion on someone else's assertion. You've got to find and research to primary source material to justify your assertion. So in other words, you would have to look at the footnotes and two Babylons and go, okay, he's he's getting his information from this. Then you would have to go track down that source and go, wait a minute, is that is that someone else making an assertion? And then sometimes what you'll find is what they're quoting is a book that someone else made the claim. Then you've got to go to that book and go, where did they get their information? You've got to work to go, where is the original information? Then you have to verify if the original information is accurate. This is just basic research. And if you don't do the research right and you turn in a research paper, you're going to get a bad grade. You're going to fail because they're like, all you did is make an assertion based on someone else's assertion and you quoted for evidence the assertion. You didn't quote any primary source information. Wow. This, (laughs) this is so... This is so, it's so irritating, but it's so fun. Or we're going to try to at least get to maybe the 15 minute mark left and stop right there. All right, here we go. We only got like a minute left. The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. You read that book, you will not be able to stay awake at night because it is alive today. Hislop. I say Hislop. So Hislop. Okay, I'm probably, I'm probably saying it incorrectly. So I apologize. We'll go with Hislop. Hislop just is the way I would, H-I-S-L-O-P. 
Hislop, Hislop, okay, what, Hislop sounds, it's, it's better, okay, yeah. just blame it on the fact that I was educated in Texas, okay, here we go. Is here, and it's always been, and Alexander Hislop exposed it with 270 contributing authors. He just went Hislop, Hislop, Hislop. Okay, now he went with Hislop. Now, now he's like, wait, 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 wait. The Theology Central podcast just said it's Hislop. I better go with it. No, he, obviously I'm joking. Sorry. All right, so that, now he's, he's really pumping up this book as this book is accurate. It's factual. No one has ever disputed it. It had 227 or 200, 273 backing up authors. He's really trying to tell. This is the book that explains everything. The only problem is, Semiramis is not mentioned in the Bible, and I still have no clue how he's jumping from this to try to prove the identity of Babylon in Revelation 17. You'd think you would be using scripture in order to prove it, but I don't know. What do I know? And people will say, I don't believe, I don't believe his research. They can say all they want. Not one person has refuted the research. People have definitely challenged it. So what do you mean by they haven't refuted it? What do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, I just read some 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 people making clear claims to refute it, and I can look up the primary source because it's footnoted what I was reading. I can find the primary source of those individuals making their claims. You, So I, I don't know if you want to just say, no one's refuted it. I think you could say, this is a controversial book, where there's been lots of criticisms of it because I was familiar with the criticisms of the book going back to the 1990s. I remember standing in the Divine Truth bookstore in Papillion, Nebraska, and there was major back and forth going, no, 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 that book is garbage. That book is trash. And then they named some other book that trashed that book. And I'm like, so there were people, there was disputes going on in the 1990s about this stuff. And I remember hearing the arguments in the Divine Truth bookstore in Papillion, Nebraska, engaging in the back and forth. And my, I think my argument at the time was, well, then I, I'm not, I'm not going to be dogmatic about the claims of this book, but I will at least consider them. And then I will check other uh, information to whether to refute or dis uh, to dispute it. And I remember, I, I, you know, reading different things, criticizing it. And so I was always like, mm. whenever people ask me about it, I, my, my answer in the past was always like, well, you can read it. I would just be careful. I would just be careful acting like all the claims in the book are 100% accurate because there are others who make different claims. And so you may get into a, a situation where they make a claim, they make a claim, and I don't know who to believe. Well, when it comes to trying to figure out things in the Bible, well, I don't know why I'm looking to Semiramis. She's never mentioned. And now he tried to find a way to get her in the Bible. I would have more issues with how he dis just placed her in the text when most commentaries and others don't place her in those texts where he just tried to place her. I would have more issues with, unless he, I wonder if he did this. I wonder if the two Babylons is serving as his primary commentary on those biblical passages, and he's not actually done biblical exegesis and actual work on the text. Search of Alexander Hislop regarding the two Babylons. I mentioned that to you because if I took the time to give you the details of her priesthood, Semiramis's priesthood, you would not believe me. You would not believe it. Turn in your Bibles very quickly to Revelation chapter 2. All right, we're going to stop right there. We're going to stop, let's see, we're going to go back, let's see here, we'll go back. 
for priesthood? Okay, we'll st- we'll go, we'll stop at the nine minute mark. Okay, I'm sorry, I was I was trying to see or yeah, uh, yeah, nine minutes. I'm gonna mark it here. Nine minute mark. Sixteen minutes left. All right, there we go. We're gonna have to stop there for today. Um, if we do any other live broadcast today, we'll do something else. We'll, we'll give this a, a little time to breathe. I have a feeling we're about to get bombarded with emails, okay? Because whenever, I know this, and uh, what I've discovered, any criticism of the two Babylons ticks off a lot of people. A lot of people, I think, will, I've seen crazy, it's almost like they would defend the two Babylons more than they will defend Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe that's a little hyperbole, but I've seen craziness on it, Okay. But uh, there you go. Wow, that was an adventure. Still don't know the identity of Babylon. I mean, at this point, he should just claim that Semiramis is, is mystery Babylon. And I guess that, that it will just make it a woman. A new woman is going to arise to power in the last days, and she will come in the spirit of Semiramis. Or it's, it's the, the demonic resurrected Semiramis. I mean, I don't know. Just, just go with that. I mean, that seems to be the direction he's going. All right, or it's to, he's going to call it the religious system at, that was established by Semiramis, based off well one book. <laughs> okay, that okay. Never mind. That was some crazy stuff. All right, email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Yes, I'm. Yeah, I'm, I just I want to slap something after listening to that. All right, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Come. And if you have found this series to be very frustrating, just remember I'm innocent. Someone told me I should review all of these. That individual will go unnamed currently. But if I die, my name has been, I, I have an email set to go out to all the world that this individual is the one who killed me for asking me to review all of these. Okay, all right. No, it actually, this is it's turning out to be pretty interesting. Hopefully, we may never get to figure out who Babel, uh, the identity of Babylon is, but we're definitely finding ourselves stumbling into how truth and history and evidence and facts is sometimes handled in the Christian church. That is beneficial. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.